0: The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. You can probably remember a time in your life where someone said something to you that was very hard to hear. And maybe at first when they said it to you, it actually made you upset and perhaps you defended yourself and argued the point. Maybe it was a parental figure, a coach, a teacher, a loved one, but now years later, you realize that you needed to hear what they had to say, though it hurt. And maybe since then, it made a big course correction in your life. In today's passage, Jesus is going to give us some smelling salts. (laughs) He's gonna say some very direct and hard things to hear. You know what smelling salts are? That's when someone faints, and then they come in front of them, and they break open that capsule of ammonia, and they put it in front of your nose, and it wakes you up. And that's Jesus' intent in today's passage. It's a smelling salt passage. But in order for you to grasp how it fits in Matthew's arrangement, I want you to know that Matthew's placed it very intentionally in the right spot in the gospel. As I told you last week, Matthew pairs three different sets of three healings. Three healings, then three more healings, then three final healings. But in between the second and the third group, he contains teaching from Jesus on what true discipleship looks like. And that's what we're going to see today. So Jesus is telling people very directly and lovingly what a true follower of his looks like to differentiate from many who may have claims that aren't legitimate. So true followers of Jesus look like this and they respond to who Jesus is as he reveals himself and his power. And they follow him because they realize their need for him. So the title of today's sermon is Jesus on true discipleship. And we'll see three qualities about true discipleship from our Lord today. And we'll see them as we interact with three different people, and here's what they are. First, true discipleship of Jesus is sacrificial because following Jesus is costly. Second, true discipleship of Jesus is decisive because following Jesus is urgent. And third, true discipleship of Jesus is joyful because following Jesus is wonderful. Let's look at those three from God's word this morning. The first one, sacrificial, because following Jesus is costly. And please look in God's word in Matthew 8, verse 18, and we'll now see the first person who came to Jesus. Let's begin in verse 18. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him. Do you remember why there's a crowd around him? Last week we went through verses 1 through 17, and at that time Jesus healed a leper whom he touched. He healed a centurion servant by his word. He healed the mother-in-law of Peter by a touch, and then he healed all sorts of people that were coming to him. And so now there's a crowd around him. And now verse 18 continues, and he gave orders to go over to the other side. Passages like that always encourage me, because sometimes I get peopled out, and Jesus did too. (laughs) So he was ready to go to the other side. He's had enough interaction with people, but before he can go, more people come to him. So look in verse 19. And a scribe came up to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. If the Bible is sort of new to you, I don't want you to be unfamiliar with what's going on here. A scribe is a teacher or an expert of the law. So here's someone with expertise with the Old Testament, we might say. And notice how he approaches Jesus. He calls him teacher. Now, if you were to read the Gospel of Matthew carefully, you would notice this. Every single person who calls Jesus teacher does not fully believe in him and does not follow him. To call Jesus teacher is to call him something that is accurate, but not nearly adequate. It does not nearly grasp who Jesus really is. And yet he here has this wide promise. Notice how it continues. I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus discerning the man responds in verse 20. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Notice the two illustrations Jesus gives. Foxes have holes. Why do foxes bury holes for a residence underground? For a place of safety and security. Birds have nests. Why do they build nests up in a heightened place? For safety and security. Jesus then is challenging this scribe's sense of home, his sense of safety and security by making clear that he, the son of man, does not have that safety and security. He does not have a place to lay his head. See, everyone in this world seeks to find in this world a sense of safety and security. Of course, ultimately, it can't be found in this world. And so Jesus now corrects this scribe who's thinking he can hold on to his illusion of safety and security and at the same time follow Jesus anywhere, when in fact you can't. You have to uproot your false sense of safety and security and find it in the only person who actually could provide it. So in this smelling salt, Jesus is telling him, wake up. You can't try to grip safety and security here when it's only found in me. Hence, to be a pilgrim of the kingdom of heaven is to realize we're not a citizen of here. So Jesus now corrects his sense of safety and security, but he corrects it based on who he is. Remember what the scribe called Jesus? Teacher. But how did Jesus describe himself in verse 20? He calls himself son of man. I was in a Bible study once, and sometimes Uh, When you're going around the, the, the circle, you hear some interesting opinions people have. And one time we were going around the circle and someone said, oh, son of man? I know what that phrase means. Jesus uses son of man to try to appeal to a relevancy that he has with humans to try to say he's just like one of us. That is the exactly wrong understanding of what the phrase son of man means. Son of man is Jesus's favorite designation of himself. In the gospel of Matthew, he refers to himself as son of man 27 times. But you know where it's from? It's from Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. That's where he's applying that title to himself. Let me read Daniel 7, 13 to 14, so you know what it actually means. Here's what the Bible says. Daniel writes, I saw in a vision, behold, in the clouds of heaven, there came the son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to the Son of Man was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, so that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. You think he's a teacher? <laughs> no, he has an everlasting kingdom that will never be destroyed. Which leads us to an obvious question. Then why does that guy not have a place to lay his head? Why would the son of man who owns an everlasting kingdom that could never be destroyed not have a place of safety and security for himself? Do you know the answer? Because he voluntarily left it so that he could provide it for those of us who would never have any other way to attain it. You see, the son of man has nowhere to lay his head because he's chosen to give up his safety and security in heaven and to take vulnerability of human nature on himself so that he can bear in his body, the sins that have separated us from home and that he can bear them out of the way so that he can make the way to the cross. You see, this scribe thinks that he can hold on to safety and security in this world, but like gripping a bar of soap too tightly, it's going to slip out anyway. And the only safety and security that could ever be is one that Christ provides. So when this man hears that following Christ may not always be comfortable, he's no longer interested. Let's pause and ask ourselves some questions. Do you think that Jesus has the right to ask anything of you? Do you think Jesus has the right to call you to things that are uncomfortable? Do you think you would be willing to follow Jesus even if, socially in America, that takes on risk and uncertainty and it doesn't seem as secure? This is the call Christ has given But see, the sacrifice he's calling for is only that we lay down the illusion of security that isn't actually security and gain the security that's eternal. And that security is gained because Jesus sacrificially took what we actually were required to pay. Sometimes people forget or misunderstand why salvation would be costly. At times people will say things like this, I don't understand, why couldn't following Jesus and why couldn't a life with Jesus just be always easy? Here's an acronym that I hope you will recall. It's an acronym for grace, G-R-A-C-E, and it means this, God's riches at Christ's expense. And if you don't understand the cost part, then you won't understand why the gift is so great and why following him might incur costs for yourself. Now this problem is not a new one. In the 1930s, the church of Martin Luther, that great stalwart of the gospel, had become a church of formalism and empty religion. Eric Metaxas writes a good biography on Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a pastor in Germany during that time. And in the foreword, written by Tim Keller, Keller asked this question, how did the church of Luther capitulate to the rise of Hitler in the 1930s? And here's the answer. The answer was that the gospel, which is summed up by Bonhoeffer as costly grace, had been lost. On the one hand, the church had become formal And they were simply saying to people, God just loves and forgives everyone, no matter how you live or what you believe. And Bonhoeffer rightly called this cheap grace. See, in the 1930s, the balance that Luther had so carefully exposited that we're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone, had been lost Instead of believing that there's a God who's holy and sin that is evil and a cost that must be paid, the church in Germany started to believe, well, God just accepts everyone, no matter who you are or how you live or what you believe. In fact, Keller goes on to write, the church began to understand grace in the 1930s in Germany as abstract acceptance. The layperson would say it this way, God forgives, that's his job. But see, that grace only can come to us by costly sacrifice. See, in today's passage, when Jesus says the Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head, He is explaining that He is enduring incredible cost that will one day be experienced in the abandonment that He feels fully on the cross. And unless He does that, there's no way we can join Him in home, the home we forfeited in heaven. But think about it practically for a second. Do any of us really believe that we could have a relationship with God without costs being paid? This last week, we heard horrible news stories. We heard stories of shooters who murdered masses of people. If one of those shooters who is demonstrably guilty was brought before court and brought before a judge, and the judge said something like this, well, we just believe you need to live your own truth Be true to yourself, and we want to show love, tolerance, and acceptance, and so you're free to go home. You would rightly be disturbed. Justice had not been carried out. How could this person be able to return home when they had done something that would separate them from home forever? But the Bible tells us that the wages of our sin is death. And death means to separate, meaning that from the Garden of Eden on, we have separated ourselves from our home with God. And the only way for that bridge to be built is for Jesus, the innocent, infinite, good Son of God, to take that abandonment, that death, those wages on His own body, so that He could bring us to the only way to have home with God. That is why the Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head. So the first smelling salt for us today is that following Christ is sacrificial, and it may include cost, even though really it's always a trait of an illusion for a reality. But now the second smelling salt, number two, is that following Jesus is decisive because coming to follow him is urgent. Look now in verse 21, and here we have another would-be disciple. Verse 21, another of the disciples said to him, let me pause and make sure you're picturing the scene. Jesus right now is surrounded by a crowd of people. And the first person said, I'll follow you anywhere. And when Jesus said, are you sure? He backed away. But now this other guy feels emboldened. I'm more certain than the first guy, so I'm gonna step forward myself. And he steps forward and says, Lord, let me first. Now, if you were to finish that sentence, you could finish it with anything, And it would be wrong. (laughs) There is no way to finish that sentence that's correct. Lord, let me first. No, there is no parenthesis to that. That would be correct. But he says, Lord, let me first. Let me point out a couple things to you. Do you notice in verse 21, Matthew calls him a disciple? We should always catch this important reality that many people who are initially thought to be disciples are not ultimately truly disciples. The most obvious example in the Bible would be Judas, but don't forget the parable of the soils that we'll get to in Matthew 13, where there's the rocky soil, and the seed falls on it, and it seems like there's some initial growth, but in the morning when the sun comes out, it scorches the soil because it has no root, and here is a man with no root, and so he says, Lord, let me first, and then he says, go and bury my father. I don't have a poll to prove this, but my guess is that of verses in Scripture that people think are terribly harsh, this has to be near the top. Most people think this is one of the worst verses in the Bible. How dare Jesus tell someone they can't go bury their dad? Maybe there's a few things that should be pointed out. One of which is that in Jewish funerals, after internment, you are required to mourn for months. And so the man is probably asking for at least a year before he would be willing to follow Jesus. But here's the bottom line truth of it. The reason that this verse seems so harsh to us is because we forget how great Jesus is and how desperately we need to listen to his voice. You see, when Jesus says, follow me, That's it. There is no other conversation. But for this man, the response is, well, I'll follow you someday when I don't have pressing matters that I need to attend to. Have you noticed in our life that we always have pressing matters that we think we need to attend to? And so if you think it's harsh that he says you can't go bury your father, you can be certain that tomorrow it would be something else. See, someday, for most people, never comes. And so, Lord, let me go do this first, and then maybe I could follow you. Let me give some applications to us from this interaction that does seem so harsh to us. The first interaction would be never fear to take that first step towards Jesus that you're afraid to take because you think, well, then who else would look after this? Many people aren't ready to follow Jesus because they think, well, if I follow Jesus, then who would take care of this? Surely no one could take care of this as well as I can. Have you ever been on a plane when they do that deal where they tell you all the stuff you should know if the plane's going down? Have you noticed nobody listens to this? (laughs) I look around the plane, everyone has headphones on, but... I listen to some of those. I get why we don't listen to them because once the flight attendant says, Here's what you should do if we're going down, we know, Well, we're all going to die, I think is what's going to happen. But when she says, Here's what you should do if we're all going down, I normally try to perk up. And what they always say is this When the oxygen mass comes down, don't put it on your child or don't put it on this person sitting next to you who fell asleep on your shoulder. But first, put it on your own face. Why? Because they say, if you don't get it on yourself first, you won't be able to help anyone else. Don't you see? That's exactly what Jesus is telling this man. That is why he says this cryptic statement in verse 22. Leave the dead to bury their own dead. Now, what does he mean? Obviously, people who are physically dead can't bury other physically dead people. So, of course, he means those who are spiritually dead would think that there's something first they need to do before they come to Jesus. In fact, the first thing you need is the mask of life. Then you'll be able to make prudent and helpful decisions. Until you breathe in life, you won't be a benefit to anyone anyway. What positives would you bring to your father's burial if you don't yet know Jesus? You see? But also we have to learn from this passage that when we, like this man, say, Lord, I will follow you, but first let me, we have to be honest enough to admit that our promises of a someday in the future very likely will never come. Often for us, we think that we're in a season that we've convinced ourselves is unusually busy, and therefore we have the right to not put Jesus first. When you're in school, you think, well, I have tests and I have exams and this is a terribly hard season and someday when it gets easier, then I'll do it. And then if in God's grace you get married, then you think, well, now I have my career and, and that's a terribly hard season and I'm new in the career and I have to prove myself still, so I really need to devote to that now. And then maybe the Lord gives you kids and you say, well, they're, I mean, I really need to devote to them now They're so important and I need to invest in them. And then you keep going along and then they have all these schedules and then someday they're the empty nest. And then you say, well, I mean, I really need to enjoy retirement now. I spent all these years paying for all the things that I'm gonna do. And then at some point you say, you know what? I'm just too tired at this point. So all the some days that you had never come. And Jesus knows us and he knows this man. And so in grace, he challenges him. Let the dead bury their own dead. To be frank, only spiritual deadness would think that it's my life to plan in the first place. So what Jesus is trying to make clear to this man is following Jesus is decisive. I like the way Keller put it when he wrote, I'm afraid many people want to negotiate the cost rather than count it. That is, they're willing to give up things but they won't give up the right to determine what those things are. But see, that's the very heart of discipleship. At the risk of stating the obvious, in all of these calls to discipleship, Jesus just says two words, follow me. Notice he never says, I want to follow you. It never goes that way. There's never a time in our relationship with Jesus where we say, you know what, Lord, I know you wanna go this way, but I want to go that way, so why don't you just follow me? Now, the relationship is always one of us following him. And so that is the blunt truth we have to know. But sometimes we forget that because we forget who Jesus really is. I like sports a lot, and so I found on YouTube recently, uh, there's a series of these. They're there these incognito athletes. It's sort of like a undercover, shopper in disguise sort of thing. And they'll take an athlete who's really well-known and he'll wear cosmetic makeup and he'll look like a totally different person, sometimes person twice his age, and then he'll go to a ballpark or to a, a, a local college and he'll play sports with the team. And at first he'll pretend like he's really bad and everybody will sneer at them and laugh at them and think, oh, who would want that person to play with you? And then gradually they'll demonstrate that they're the best athlete on the field far and away. And then at the end, when they rip off the makeup or take off the mask and you see that you're playing with the best athlete of that sport, all those people who were formerly sneering at them now revere them and sit at their feet saying what can we learn from you see when you see who Jesus actually is then the roles totally reverse and you realize what what can I learn from you what would you have me do Lord my favorite example of this in the Bible is Isaiah 6 In Isaiah 6, Isaiah sees the Lord lifted up on his throne in all his glory. And Isaiah responds, as we all must, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. And then the cherubim atones for his sin and he is cleaned. But then the Lord says this, whom shall I send? And before he gives the job description, Isaiah says, here am I, send me. Because he saw who God really is. You see, when you see who God really is, you don't barter anything. You just say, here am I, send me. And we now see that in our third point. First, following Jesus is sacrificial, although in reality, you're always trading up. Second, it's decisive because Jesus deserves urgent pursuit. But now, third, it's joyful. And here in this interaction. We'll see what true discipleship should look like. So now please flip to Matthew 9 in your Bible. So flip one chapter ahead to Matthew 9. And in Matthew 9, we now pick up in verse 9. And the Bible says, as Jesus passed on from there, All right, I don't want you to miss this. They're doing three miracles, then Jesus calls. Then three more miracles, then Jesus calls. Here are the three miracles he just did before he will call Matthew. He just told the winds and waves to obey him, and they did. He took demons out of people who were demon-possessed and put them in pigs. And then he healed a paralytic and forgave his sins. Here's why I want to press that to you. Sometimes people will say something like, you know, If some random guy came up to me and said, follow me, I don't think I would follow him. But that's not what's happening in the gospels. (laughs) In the gospels, they're watching him do miracles. But I want you to catch this point too. Even though the scribe and the other man just saw him do miracles, they didn't follow him. Do you know why? We don't have an evidence problem. We have a sin problem. Many people think, oh, if I just saw Jesus personally, if I just saw the miracles with my own eyes, if you could just show me where the ark is, no, none of that would change anything. We don't have a problem of mental evidence. We have a problem of moral, willful blindness. So the reality is, it's not like you don't have enough clues. The heavens declare the glory of God. There is nothing else for you to need to see. So here in Matthew 9, Jesus has just just done incredible miracles, but everybody has seen these. But now someone finally responds correctly. So Matthew nine, verse nine. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth and he said to him, follow me. The same two words he's been saying with everyone, but now a different response. And Matthew rose and followed him. Without qualification, without hesitation, without bartering, without questions. See, unlike the scribe who wasn't sure if it would be comfortable enough, or unlike the would-be disciple who thought maybe someday this person understands immediately the urgency of it. Now, here's a fear, another fear I have. At this point, sometimes people will say, well, you know, Josh, what's going on in the Gospels? That doesn't apply to us. You know, the way Jesus called people then, there's no way that's how it's supposed to be now. I would recommend this book to you, it's very good. It's written in the 1960s by Robert Coleman called The Master's Plan of Evangelism. I typed out here some of what he wrote. He wrote this, we must learn this lesson again today. Why are so many professed Christians stunted in mediocrity? Where is the obedience of the cross? Indeed, it would appear that the teachings of Jesus regarding self-denial and dedication have been replaced with a sort of respectable do-as-you-please philosophy of expediency. But just pause and think. We're in Matthew 9 right now. So far in the Gospel of Matthew, can you think of anyone who has who's had Jesus enter their life that it didn't radically change things? How to it go for Mary or Joseph or the wise men or John the Baptist or Peter and Andrew And Jesus said to them, follow me? And they left their dad and their boat immediately there are no exceptions none there's no one that just it doesn't apply to everyone who comes to know jesus it's this radical decisive eternal change so why would anyone make it because following jesus is wonderful look in the verses that remain verse 10 And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came. And they were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Notice he is bringing into a relationship of home sinners. So the son of man who has no home is making a place of belonging and home for those who are sinners who come to him. Verse 12, but when Jesus heard it, he said, those who are well, those who think they're well, have no need of a physician, but those who realize they're sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not empty sacrifice, for I came not to call the perceived righteous, but sinners. Do you know why following Jesus is wonderful? Because when you know how holy God is, and when you know how sinful you are, you are amazed that God's son would not only sit with and eat with, but live for and die for a sinner like you. See, following Jesus is wonderful because true disciples realize that the great physician came to heal me. And if he came to heal me, then I run decisively to him, whatever the short-term cost appears to be. As Pilgrim does in the book Pilgrim's Progress, putting his fingers in his ears, running away from the city of destruction, shouting out to himself, eternal life, eternal life. If the Son of Man has come to heal us, and you know you're sick, (laughs) then you rejoice that Jesus says, follow me. You see, we have so sometimes flipped our roles that we've actually treated Jesus as if he should be the one waiting on us. If we think we're not ready to follow Jesus, here's what actually we're saying. The creator and sustainer of the universe should take a deli ticket number and sit in the corner of our life's waiting line and wait until we call him. Does that really make any sense? Growing up on Sunday afternoons, we used to go to Randazzo's, an Italian restaurant. And on Sunday afternoons, it was always packed. And when we got that ticket number, if it was called, (laughs) we were running up to the counter. (laughs) We're so hungry. We're so excited. See, that's the heart of someone who knows who they are when Jesus says, follow me. Verse 14, then the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. It's really a simple big point Jesus is making. Life with Jesus is too wonderful for sadness. And life without Jesus is too sad for celebration. We experience this in our own life when we have love or loss. When you're experiencing love, even gray skies have a silver lining. When you're experiencing loss, even sunny days seem foreboding. This weekend, my wife and my kids ended up having a day off work and a couple days off school, and so they went to my wife's family's house in Greenville, South Carolina, which is where they've been and our life schedule is such right now that, I mean, honestly, I need to work on it, but we seem like we're busy so often we don't get that many days together at home, and Friday night is normally our, our night that we together as a family do things together, and this Friday, of course, she was gone, and it ended up being a beautiful day. So she was gone, and I got my bike, and I thought, oh, I'm going to try and enjoy the, the night, and I got on the bike, and I downloaded a map of Raleigh's Greenway, and in my hubris, I thought, I'm going to do the whole thing. (laughs) So I got on my bike, and I got about three miles from home, and then I was waiting at a traffic light for what seemed way too long, and then I turned around and went right back. (laughs) And honestly, the real difference was this. I like those things when she's there. That's what makes them fun, her presence. See, that's what Jesus is saying here. How can you fast in sadness when the bridegroom is present? Now, the disciples will get this when he's taken to the cross and he's not with them. But see, when he's there, there's such delight that you can't even contain it. Look now in verse 16 and 17 no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made verse 17 neither is new wine put into old wine skins if it is the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed but new wine is put in fresh wine skins and so both are preserved this is actually one of my favorite sections in the bible and i've taught long lessons on it because i think there's layers of meaning to it but let me just make the big point that jesus is making here Notice, new wine needs fresh containers. If you have bursting joy in Christ, it cannot be contained in empty, dead formalism. You see? See, the the Pharisees don't actually know Jesus. But if you do, you can't contain the excitement. There's such glory in it that whatever sacrifice or whatever decisiveness would have kept you away, you forget about it because knowing Jesus is wonderful. And so that fresh wine needs fresh wineskins. And just like a relationship where you start to love doing things that formerly you didn't like, but you love that person so much, you start doing those things. So with Christ, you love him so much, you start delighting in those things that before seemed like they were drudgery. So yes, following Jesus in one sense is sacrificial, but you're always trading up. Following Jesus in one sense is decisive, but really it's an easy decision because ultimately following Jesus is joyful because Jesus is wonderful. And here's why he's wonderful. Because the same Lord who comes to you and says, follow me, will never call you to make a sacrifice greater than the one he made. You see, the Son of Man didn't have a place to lay his head because he felt abandonment on the cross so that you and I would never have to. He's the one who brings sinners to eat with him eternally. Jesus will never ask you to be decisive in a way that is close to how decisive he was. Where from the Garden of Gethsemane. He chooses to go to Golgotha. And from that cross, he bears what separates us from our Father. And Jesus at his right hand has joy forevermore, Psalms promises us. Because that same Lord who laid on the cross, praise God, will remember especially in a week from today did not stay there. He rose victoriously so that that fresh wine can stay in fresh wineskins forever. See, the disciples experienced a period where the bridegroom is taken away, but we never will because now he will never leave us or forsake us because he is risen. So let me ask you this morning, how did Jesus' smelling salts affect you? Today, will you back away like the scribe and try to grip safety and security that you can't actually hold anyway? Or will you finally let go of that illusion and find Christ to be your home? Today, will you be like the would-be disciple who said, well, Lord, someday? Or will you realize, like Matthew and millions of others, that those smelling salts are given so that we will wake up and get up and follow Jesus? Let's pray to him this morning. Dear God, I need these smelling salts so badly because you know better than anyone that I'm naturally a coward who wants to find my own control of my sense of safety and security. And so many times when I know what you want me to do, I'm afraid. And I'm afraid to step forward. But Lord, remind me that there is nothing that you are not more capable of caring for than me. And so if in my mind I'm thinking, Lord, but just let me first, then help me to trust you surely can care for those things in your way better than I could. So I pray for that about my own family, about my own children, about my own home, about my own calling, about my profession, about my life. Lord, forgive me when I try to squeeze what I need to open and trust to you. Lord, also, I know I can equivocate when the Bible is really clear, and I can hem and haw and think, well, what will people think, or what will be the collateral implications? But Lord, sometimes the Bible is so clear, we just have to obey and trust. Enable us to do that. Enable us as a church, as Emmanuel Baptist Church, to decisively, costly follow Jesus, whatever else happens in this culture and in this world. But Lord, also perhaps the smelling salt today is waking up someone to eternal life for the first time. Maybe they came in today or they're watching online and they don't know the Lord Jesus and they're interested in Jesus like these people were. But it's not enough to be interested in Jesus. It's not enough to have a somewhat accurate view of him. You need to adequately know him. And you know him by turning from your sin and trusting in him alone. And then where he is, you will be also. So help them today to find their way home by the one who made it available, the way, the truth, and the life. And Lord, I know in America, we're uneasy. We care about what other people think about us. Please remove that from us over the next few minutes because while we're singing... Maybe someone needs to just kneel and say, God, save me. And not worry about what else is going on around them, but respond to the call of Jesus. May we all respond as we should. In our Lord's name I pray, amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to com. That's E-B-C-R-A-L-E-I-G-H dot com.